If you have an, uh, what we just call an E3 Bible, there's the, uh, these Bibles that are on these tables. If you need a Bible and you want to get one, we're going to be dealing with uh, a chapter out of uh, Luke's Gospel. And that's on page like 627 in these E3 Bibles. But if you want to go there and you have your own Bible, you can turn there now. We started this series last week called Prodigal. And what it is, is essentially this one story that Jesus tells in Luke's gospel, this good news story about Jesus. And if you guys remember that uh, uh, Jesus is always in, in the gospel, he's always getting tr in trouble with the religious establishment because of who he likes to eat dinners with, because of who he likes to sit down uh, at a table with. In this culture, uh, the table, sitting down with somebody, implied so many things. It implied essentially, listen, I'm, I'm in fellowship with you. I'm in relationship with you. I accept who you are. It's okay that we're eating together. It was a statement of like how you saw other people who you ate with. You know, and if you guys remember, we, I made the remark last week that you could provide for somebody on the street. You could feed a poor person, but you were never obligated to sit down at a meal with that person. And Jesus is always having dinner with the wrong kinds of people. He's always having dinner and meals with outsiders, with people who just don't look like they belong in church, who don't look like they belong uh, in, as part of like, well, these are kind of the good religious people. Jesus is always having meals with people who just don't look right, according to church people. Um, and so he's always getting questioned about it. And in Luke 15, it's no different. There are these uh, folks who come up to him. Uh, one group is called the Pharisees. There's another group called the legal experts. The legal experts are literally the experts in the Hebrew scriptures. They're the experts in what the Bible says. They know it forwards and backwards. They can quote all the scriptures. And the Pharisees are kind of like that, but, but they have uh, another level of learning in terms of the oral traditions that are passed on. Now, I, I feel very strongly, I don't like to pick on these folks too much because they were, I believe they were passionate and good-hearted people at their core, all right? But they're always questioning. Listen, Jesus, you're sitting down with disreputable people. You're sitting down with people who are outsiders, who don't look like they even wanna be a part of what God's doing. And Jesus is like, no, I love it. I love it. And so uh, he's always getting questioned. He's always getting in trouble. And then finally in Luke 15, they're grumbling about it again. And then Jesus just says, these, he, he starts to tell a story. And we brought up the fact that, that last week, it's a story, it's a parable, which we're kind of invited into a world in the parables. And it's one parable with three parts. And when Jesus starts telling the story, I believe very strongly that Jesus is just saying, do you want to know why I sit down with disreputable people? And he essentially says, well, let me tell you about God because God explains why I do what I do. And so when he starts telling this story, it is basically like him saying, well, let's talk about what God is like. And so he tells one parable with three parts. We started with the first two parts last week. There is a man, a shepherd. He has lost one sheep out of a hundred. He goes and finds a sheep, brings it home, celebrates, has a meal. The next part of the story is a woman who loses a coin and, and, and let's not blow by that. I said, Jesus has no problem inferring that God has a feminine quality. He says a woman is going to search for a coin, one in 10, and she finds a coin and she celebrates. And every time you celebrate in this culture, you have a meal. 
And that brings us to the third part of the parable. And it's the longest, it's longer than both of these combined. And each of these uh, parables, they kind of build on each other and they move in and out of each other. And Jesus is building up. It's almost like a symphony that's building up. And so today, and for the next two weeks, we're going to look at the third part of this parable. And if you've been around church uh, uh, for any length of time, you'll know it as the parable of the prodigal son. All right? But I, I think at the end of these weeks, you might understand it by a different title. And so what I want to do is just walk through the text, tell you what's happening in the text as best I can tell. And what I want you to do is remember, why is Jesus telling this story? Because he's trying to tell them, let me tell you what God is like. Let me tell you what God is like. That's why I'm sitting down with all of these people who look so very rough around the edges. And before I start, I will say this. Listen, let's make no mistake. Uh, church people have, ch have not changed much over 2,000 years. There are still people that wander into this room that some of us would say, Eric, I don't know if they belong here. I don't know if they're really sincere about wanting to find God. I don't know if they should be here, Eric. And so as in the same way that Jesus is telling those people that story, if you're one of those people, let me say here to you, well, let me tell you what God is like. And if you happen to be one of the people who are listening, I, I think I might be one of those outsider people. I, I come in here and I'm, I'm waiting for the moment when someone's gonna stand up and point their finger at me. I would say the same thing. Well, let me tell you what God is like. Because the way God is, is the way we want E3 to be. We cannot layer sort of another level of, of ideas onto what God has said. So I will tell you, best I can, according to Jesus, this is what God is like. So Luke 15, uh, verse 11. Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. Now, um, when he does this, this is awesome because uh, Jesus has this audience, right? They're Pharisees, they're legal experts, they know their Bible, but they're also, the scripture says, the very outsider people, like they're standing around Jesus listening to him tell this story. Jesus starts off with, uh, with what I would call a trope. A trope is a, a literary device. It's a storytelling device. And a trope basically does heavy lifting for you. You throw a tiny little idea out. It's almost like a cliche. And as soon as you throw the idea out, most of the people, they go, oh, I know exactly what, where, where this is going. I know exactly what he's talking about. I remember, um, so like in movies, you see tropes. Like um, if you saw a big, abandoned, multi-story, decrepit, like former insane asylum, you would be like, well, we are in a horror movie or some kind of thriller. Like there are just things where we go, oh, I know exactly where we're going. Well, Jesus starts his story out by saying, a certain man had two sons. In his context with this audience, as soon as he says a certain man, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes would have said, he's got two sons. And then they also would have said, and there's gonna be an argument. Why? Because... Uh, a, a father with two sons forms so much of the basis of the Hebrew scriptures. First, first uh, man, Adam, married to Eve. Anybody, what, what are their sons' names? Cain and Abel. Two sons have a little bit of an argument. Move a little bit further in stories. It's still in the first book of the Bible. Abraham has two sons. 
Then uh, Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. So Jesus is basically like setting his audience up. Oh, we know exactly where the story. Two sons, there's going to be an argument. He moves on and instantly starts to get uh, even more interesting because he says, the younger son said to his father, father, give me my share of the inheritance. Now, this in and of itself is not yet shocking. But let me tell you, if you don't know the context uh, in the Middle East and in the ancient world, when the younger son says to his father, give me my share of the inheritance. Well, maybe this just goes now. Uh, what happens, what has to happen before you get an inheritance typically? Death. So when the younger son says, father, um, give me my share of the inheritance. What he is saying is, father, I wish, uh, could you just die? I wish you were, uh, could you just die because I want, I want my, I want paid right? Father, give me my share of the inheritance. This is shocking, right? Now, in the ancient world, in the Middle East, the, the father tended to kind of rule with a, with a heavy hand. And so what should have happened in the story is the father would have been like, I'll show, I'll give you an inheritance right now. And like culturally, this is so insulting. I mean, I'm a father, you know, one of my sons, Father, I wish you were dead. Give me the money that I'll get when you die. When you die. And culturally, the father should have just beaten the son because that's what went on in that culture in that time. He was within his rights and his expectations to thrash the younger son. Except that's not what happens at all because the text just says the father divided his estate between them. So he says, dad, I wish you were dead. And instead, the father just says, okay, here's your inheritance. Now, there's one level uh, above this. You see, um, when we hear this, we hear this through our cultural filter now. Um, and especially if you've grown up in this country, later on in the story, we're gonna hear things like there's a fattened calf, right? There's, it's a farm, it's an agrarian setting. And when we hear that, what we think of is we think of an, a North American farm. So maybe it looks like this. You have the farmhouse and you have the fields all around it, right? And so uh, when you think of these arguments, you think of them taking place uh, amidst this wide open space. Except that's not what farming in the Middle East in the first century looked like. This is when the Bible is taking place. This is what farming in the Middle East looks like today, much like it did 2,000 years ago. You see, the fields are kind of all together on the outside of town and you live inside town and you live very, very close to your neighbors. There is like no concept of, of privacy. And so when we think about all of this happening, do not think of an American farmhouse surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of acres. Think about a man sitting this close to his neighbors and his younger son comes up and says, Father, give me my inheritance. I wish you were dead. Give me the money. And who hears it? Everyone. So how humiliating is it now for the father? 
What does it say about how he's raised his sons, this, father, this child? The, the, the corporate humiliation, everyone watch. Oh, did you see what happened in that family last night? You know you would have been looking. But the father divides his estate. And then the text says this, that soon after, the younger son gathered everything together and took a trip to a land far away. Now, there's something going on here in the verb uh, gathered everything. Um, and, and the English translation, I think in this case, is not so great because the Greek, uh, the New Testament is written in Greek. The Greek word there doesn't so much mean gathered stuff. So the younger son asked for, give me my share of the inheritance. The, gr the Greek word there implies that uh, he got together the cash. And in this context, what it meant was that the father gives the son his share of the inheritance, which is probably more goods. Here's your share of the crops. Here's your share of the household stuff. And then you know what the son does? He goes to the pawn shop. So how deep is the rejection now? How deep is the humiliation? You've given me the stuff, the valuable stuff from our house, God, uh, or father, but I just went and sold it and got the cash. And then it says he took a trip to a land far away. And this is flat out is going to mean in Jesus's context, he went to the, a, a Gentile area, non-Jewish area, land far away. Now he's not even among his people. And then it said he wasted his wealth through extravagant living. Now, uh, this is important uh, for the coming weeks. Understand that extravagant does not mean, have anything to do with immoral. There's nothing in that word in Greek that says he did anything immoral. It was expensive living. That's what it was. So, um, now, before we move on, I want to talk to you about uh, a, a teaching that uh, uh, some rabbis wrote down in the second uh, and third century. Um, they basically, we've, they discovered this uh, teaching from the rabbis that had an instruction for Jewish people who were going out and traveling and had money. And they said, listen, what you must never do if you're a good Jew, what you must never ever do is lose your money to a Gentile. They said, go out, do what you got to do, be a businessman. But what you can never do is never be in debt to a Gentile. Never lose your money to a Gentile. Because it's like, it's like turning your back on your identity as one of God's people. And so he, the younger son gets the cash, turns his back on his father, turns his back on his family and says, here we go. And then we're, we find out he went to a land far away, which is Gentile territory, and he wasted the inheritance. To who? The Gentiles. Now, there's a, there's a ceremony that began to be associated with this. It's called the Kazaza. Let me hear you say Kazaza. So the Kazaza ceremony was designed to deal with anybody who, who did this. And so if, uh, if the, typically the son in this culture, if the son tried to come back to the community that he left and he had lost his money to the Gentiles, the people of that community would gather together and they would burn, roast and burn nuts and they would roast and burn corn and they would put it in this clay pot. And as the person came back to the village, they would rug it and they would shatter the pot. And they would say, uh, Chuck, you are cut off from your people. 
because you had lost your money to the Gentiles. You were cut off from the people. So this is what the younger son is dealing with. When he had used up his resources, a severe food shortage arose in that country and he began to be in need and he hired himself out to one of the citizens, a Gentile of that country who sent him into his fields to feed what? Oh, we're in trouble now. It's an unclean animal and he's around now unclean animals every day. He is now unclean. He's Jewish. He longed to eat his fill from what the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. All right, before we get into this next batch of, of, of uh, uh, verses, I want to take a step back because you guys remember, if you were here last week, we talked about the idea of like this radical thing about the first two stories Jesus tells and the whole idea of what does it mean for the searcher, the finder, uh, what does he expect out of the object that he finds? And so we talked about the idea last week of what does it mean to change your heart and your mind to repent in Bible words for these stories? And we asked the question, like, did the sheep repent? Did the sheep change uh, the sheep heart and the sheep mind? Or did the sheep just desire to be found? Did the coin changes coin heart or coin mind or did the coin just desire to be found so um, I gotta tell you uh, I've had to really struggle through these next verses because I've always understood these next two verses a certain way and and now I'm kind of wondering because we're talking again about what does it take for what is the uh, expectation that God has because what's Jesus asking let me tell you what God's like so what does God expect out of the objects that found, out of the people that's found? So it says, uh, verse 16 said, he has longed to, fill, longed to eat his fill. No one gave him anything. He came to his senses and he said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food, but I'm starving to death. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Take me on as one of your hired hands. Everybody say hired hands. Does the son desire to go back and repair the relationship with his father? What's he want? He says, I'm hungry. I got no food. You know who hires people? Daddy. I'll go back and ask if, if he'll hire me. It says nothing about, I'll restore the honor I took from you. It says nothing about saying sorry for humiliating you in front of the entire community. It just says, he'll hire me and I'll get some food out of it. Oh yeah. Furthermore, because Jesus is speaking to Bible people, church people, they would have recognized something interesting in his language. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. That's a particular phrase. And uh, they would have recognized it as coming from the book of Exodus. When someone says, I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you. And the church people go, oh, see, Eric, no, no, he did change his mind. He did repent. Only one problem with that. You know who says this in the book of Exodus? Pharaoh. And he says it when he keeps telling Moses, oh, I'll let you go. 
I'll, I'll change my, and then he changed him. Oh, no, I'm not going to let you go. In this context, like Pharaoh has not changed his heart and mind at all. He's just playing games. And so Jesus' audience would have picked up on this. They're going, oh, man. So this son is going back because he just wants food, doesn't care about his father. He's turned his back on his people because now he owes money to, he's lost his money to the Gentile and he's not really changing his mind. And yet, verse 20, uh, he got up and he went to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father, humiliated, rejected in no uncertain terms, while the son was far off, and Jesus is saying, let me tell you what God's like. Let me tell you what God's like. Before the son has said, I'm gonna repair this relationship, the father sees him and was moved with what? Compassion. And his father ran to him and hugged him and kissed him. But we're not done yet because the son has an elevator pitch. He's like, why am I going? I need food. So here's my pitch. Uh, Father, right, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. And then what's supposed to come next? It's supposed to come next is he says, take me on as one of your hired hands. But except you know what happens? The father stops him. The son doesn't even get to ask if he can work for food. And the father just says, uh, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. You see, the son goes back and he's like, I want to work for this. Can you let me work for this? Can you let me work off my humiliation? And instead, the father just says, no, you don't because sons don't work. Sons get it because of who they are. What is God like? He's like a father that will suffer the humiliation and the rejection and even say, son, I, I, I don't think this is a good idea for you to go traveling to this far country, but go ahead. And when he sees him before the son can even say, I'll work for this food, he just says, no, 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 no. I'm so glad you're home. But, but I, I wanna work. No, 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 no. Just kill the fatted calf. Put the robe on and the ring on because you're home. You're home. Fetch the fattened calf, slaughter it. And we have to celebrate with feasting. We must celebrate because this son of mine was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and is found. What's God like? He's just like the father who will suffer anything. Turn your back on him, reject him, humiliate him. But when you want to come home, he runs to you with arms open wide. And he just says, kill the calf. They're home. They're home. I, uh, I lived in a few different homes growing up. Um, here's some of the ones I remember. Uh, the first home that I remember uh, is in uh, rural Pennsylvania. Uh, so rural that Google Street View does not reach there. Um, and, all, and I, furthermore, I'm, I'm one of those people uh, that my house is sort of the low, lowest uh, house with the, I don't even know, gray, you know, ish roof. 
the house next to it is my uncle, and the gray-roofed uh, house up in the top is my grandparents. So we had a compound. I moved from there in 1976 to 318 Kirby Creek Drive in Grand Prairie, Texas. And that house still looks exactly the same, except the trees are a lot bigger. And I came home, you know, we, we moved there and got bedrooms and got situated. Uh, after a few years there, moved just a mile away to a 3622 Park Ridge Drive. And uh, that's where I kind of graduated high school in. Those were my homes, right? And my, I knew what my home was. Home was where... You know, I knew where my bedroom was. You know, this is where I, I had posters up. And, and uh, I knew, you know, where the TV was. And I knew where the cookies were. Of course, I knew where the cookies were. You know, but after this house, I don't know if you guys ever went through this thing of like, um, I moved to Chicago with my wife. And then my parents left this house and they moved to a place in Virginia without me. And I don't know if you've ever gone through that first time of like going, if, you, if your parents have ever relocated, and you're like, wait, what, what's home now? I went to this first, this house in Virginia, and I'm like, wait, the bedroom doesn't have any of like my old posters in it. Like, I don't know. I still knew where the cookies were. I could like smell them. I don't know what it was. But it just brought up the idea of like, man, how do you know what home is? Is home like, you know, where your, your bedroom is? Is home like where you know the ins and outs of your neighbors? Or is home something deep, deeper? Because I think this story is all about a God who calls and invites his children home. Um, let me show you, I think, what's been speaking to me. Uh, uh, Rembrandt, master painter, painted this scene. This is called the return of the prodigal son. This is the moment painted that we just read. And so you see uh, the, the father with the red robe and uh, the son with his shaved head, uh, uh, broken sandals, no color in his clothing. And uh, off to the, the right, you see the older son. And uh, Pastor Lori's going to teach about the older son next week, but... You see the embrace. And that embrace, that's what a home is to me. Home is just the place where I'm known and loved and embraced, not because I perform really well, not because I'm bright, not because I'm clever, not because I'm a good musician. I am I'm treasured and loved because I'm my parents' son. When Jesus tells these parables, he is saying first and foremost, let me tell you what God is like. But a parable is, is an invitation to inhabit a world. And so when I see this picture and when I read these stories, I think I'm invited also to, to look at these other characters. And not just to consider like how is God what is God like? But I'm also invited to consider how am I like the characters in this story? So how have I left home? How am I like that younger son? How am I like the younger son that has said, home is where I am known and loved for who I am, but yet there's something inside me and maybe you're the same way that just runs out and says, I don't need you. Father, I wish you were dead. 
and I'm just going to go to a far off country. Let me put it this way. I think we all need to come home. And I think we're all invited to come home. What is God like? God is like the Father that you cannot humiliate enough or reject enough to to ever have him take his love away from you. Even if you come home just wanting to get fed. Anybody ever go home and you're just like, I'm going to pretend to be glad to see my parents, but all I really want is a home-cooked meal. God's like, come on. Come on. So, uh, Henry Nouwen, a great author, wrote uh, a reflection on this painting. And, and what I want to do is, I just want to push on this a little bit. Because I, I think it's important for us to maybe learn to recognize how have we left home? How have we left the place of beloved child, of those arms embracing uh, me? And I just kind of combined some of my thoughts with some of now and stuff. So the first I would say, listen, if you find yourself in life consumed with getting more, more, more status, more power, more relationships, whether they're sexual or friendship, more, 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 because more is better, you may have wandered into the far country because the beloved life just says you're enough right now, where you're at. Those things might come, but you're enough right now. Now one puts it this way. He has a list that's like this. Are you angry? Do you have resentments? Are you jealous? Do you desire revenge on people that have hurt you? Do you struggle with lust? Greed? Do you have a rival? You know you do. Do you feel threatened? Because you know what? When I am home, when I am home and I hear the words beloved, you know what? I don't care. I don't care how good your life is because I have enough. But when I don't hear the word beloved, when I am not home, I will be consumed. It's like, listen, I... I am going to be jealous because what if there's not enough for me? What if there's not enough for me? So we're going to do something in just a moment that we hardly ever do because the father desperately wants his children home. And I'm going to say a prayer. And when I say the prayer, I'm going to leave some space because you might be here today and you might be like, you know what? I have left home. I might not even never known what home looked like, but I would just tell you home is the place that you were known and loved perfectly with no expectations. And I'm going to say some words in a prayer and I'm going to just leave space for you to say them quietly in your heart. Because all I want you to know is how desperately the Father wants you home. Only so he can say, my beloved child, I am so glad. So to do this, I'm going to invite us all just right now to bow our heads and close our eyes. Just so we can have a place of safety. 
And as I speak these words, if it's true of your life or if it's true of an area of your life, just feel free to repeat them to yourself in this moment. Let's pray. Father, I am ready to come home. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Father, I am sorry that I rejected you. I'm sorry I turned my back on your love. And now I only want to hear your voice saying, welcome home, beloved child. Father, I trust your love. Father, I trust your embrace. And thank you for welcoming me home. Amen.